Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 43. This is what Holy Scripture says. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please do take your Bibles, if you would, and open them back up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. It would help you so much if you had the Bible open in front of you so you could see the things we hope to see here in Luke's Gospel. Happy Thanksgiving to you. I love Thanksgiving. I think it's in some ways the most Christian holiday. You might find, you could disagree with me, you might say Christmas is the most Christian or Easter is the most Christian. I tend to think those holidays, at least in our country, have been so polluted with commercialism and other things that Thanksgiving to me feels like the most Christian. Uh, Our own uh, confession of faith, we we sort of reach back to the year 1689. uh, In London, England, there were Baptists that got together and wrote, here's what we believe the Bible teaches. And one of the things it calls us to do is to make public thanksgivings to God, uh, to remember to thank Him for what He has done. And in Canada, in our history at least, uh, this Thanksgiving Day is rooted in the Christian faith. It was uh, believers, I think the majority were believers, it was at least our Governor General Vincent Massey who made a public proclamation which said uh, that there was to be a a day of general thanksgiving to Almighty God for the bountiful harvest with which Canada has been blessed. And that was January 31st, 19. 57. And so the Christian roots of this particular holiday, they make sense if you just parse the word thanksgiving. You're to give thanks, and the giving of thanks requires an object to thank, someone to thank, unless you're just really weird and sort of proffering your thanksgivings into the ether or something. Uh, we, We give thanks to, as the governor general instructed us to, to Almighty God. But of course, we give thanks to God because God told us to give thanks to God. So I love Thanksgiving. I think it's a Christian holiday. I'm happy to own it. I'm thankful for the bountiful harvest. Shout out to the farmers. I want to eat, and I'm grateful too. I'm thankful for the country in which I live. I'm thankful for the freedom which we have. I'm thankful that we can gather here week by week to worship the Lord. But the one thing I would love for every soul here to, and I mean you if you're wondering, um, I would love it if by the end of this day, every single person here could say, the, th- the thing that I am most thankful for is a person, and the person is Jesus. Now, I don't know if you can say that yet or not, but my greatest delight would be for you to be able to end this day by saying the person I am most thankful for is Jesus Christ, the author of our great salvation. And so, for those of you who are already Christians and I hope those of you who are not Christians yet, but will be by the end maybe of this morning, I hope that every one of you would be able to give thanks to Christ. And and the way I want to sort of stir up that thanksgiving in your hearts for all of us is by looking at the most unlikely convert I think there has ever been, and that is this man we refer to as the thief on the cross. We call him the thief on the cross because we don't know his name. The Bible didn't record it. But we know some things about this man. And when we look at his story, we discover our story. He was hopeless. He was helpless. And our hearts should be overflowing with thanksgiving to Christ because Christ saves to the uttermost. And that's what he did with this man. So let's think about this story in three parts. First of all, the two robbers. Secondly, the one robber. 
It's kind of cheating, I guess. Uh, and then thirdly, the only Savior. So the first thing I want you to see is this. Two men were lost. Two men were lost. This is Luke chapter 23. Uh, let's look at verse 32. If you find the big 23, that's the chapter heading. And then go down to the little numbers to number 32. That's the verse, and that's where we're going to begin. And it says this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, who were these two men who were crucified on either side of Jesus? Luke tells us that they were criminals. That's the word he used. Two men, two others who were criminals. That word is often in the Bible translated simply as evildoer. That's what it means, an evildoer. It refers to a person who does evil by breaking law, by breaking God's laws in particular. There are four Gospels, four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament. They all agree with each other. They're just kind of different angles and different reports by different people of the life of Jesus. And in Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Mark tell us that these criminals, their crime was theft. They were robbers. They're robbers, bandits, if you will, men who stole from other people or institutions. We don't know if they were part of like a little gang, if they worked together. We don't know if they were co-workers, but we know that they were co-evil doers because they had broken the eighth commandment, which is you shall not steal. What about you? Have you broken any of God's commandments? You ever stolen anything? Well, that would make you a thief, and you have broken the commandment. Have you ever told a lie? maybe even a white lie as we like to think of them. Well, then you have broken the ninth commandment, and that would make you a liar. Have you ever wanted your neighbor's house? Then you have coveted, and that would mean you have broken the tenth commandment, do not covet. Which means the only difference between you and these two men hanging on either side of Jesus is that they were caught. Did you know there are about 100 murders a year in Canada that go unsolved? Just in the city of Toronto, 15 to 20 murders a year for which no one is ever charged. Now, over a 10-year period, that means there's some 150 to 200 murderers living in our neighborhoods, walking on our streets, who have never been caught which means you might be a murderer, for all I know. Or perhaps you're a thief who's never been caught. Or maybe you're an adulterer who has a secret little relationship you hope no one ever knows about. And the only difference between you, my friend, and these two criminals hanging either side of Jesus is that you haven't been caught yet. We don't know how, but these two men had been caught, and now they're going to die for their crimes. So they are evil men. They are guilty men. They are also sinful men. Luke tells us these men had been around Jesus for most of the day. Back in verse 32, they were led away to be put to death with him. 
Now, even if that was the point of intersection of their lives, at the very least, they had taken that miserable march with Jesus from the place of Pilate to the place of the skull, and they had likely, likely witnessed the, the abuse Jesus had suffered, the, the mocking He had suffered. They had watched Him be beaten and whipped, and they were watching as He was the first of the three to be nailed to a wooden cross. And they certainly heard all the, the mocking and tongue-wagging of the crowds as they're all three now hanging there on their wooden instruments of death. And remarkably, these two men join in. Matthew and Mark are very clear here. Those who were crucified with Him also reviled Him. The two men who are being crucified beside Jesus are reviling Jesus, both of them. There they are, slowly dying for their crimes and, and gasping for breath so they can revile the man who hangs between them. You can picture that man and the other as well, pushing up, trying to get enough air so they could utter things like, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Sometimes Christians think that if circumstances would just get bad enough for my child, for my niece, for that old friend, if things would just get bad enough, then surely that person would call out and repent of their sins and believe on Jesus. But I would urge you, Christian, gaze carefully at the scene that is painted before us. Here are two dying men struggling to catch enough breath in order to hurl insults at the world's only Savior. Suffering is no substitute for the Spirit. Sinful men and women will reject Christ until their dying breath, no matter their circumstances. What is needed is a work of God Himself to open the eyes of the heart to see that the innocent man dying on the tree is the Savior, not a scoundrel. You might be a thief or a murderer or an adulterer, but getting caught isn't going to lead you to repentance. You must come to terms with the fact that you are a sinner in the eyes of God, that you are lost. These men were lost. Are you lost? Perhaps you have done things in your life that you hope nobody will ever discover. Maybe you think, if I just do a good, enough good things now that somehow you're going to repay your debt to society. I was reminded, of a, reminded this week of a man who knocked on this door many years ago, and said, I'd like to give the church money. I said, that's strange. I don't know you. And he, and he opened up an envelope with literally thousands of dollars of cash. He said, I'd like to give this to the church. I said, why? He said, well, I've done some things. I said, well, hold your money, because you can't buy salvation. No, I just want to give you money. I don't want your money. You need Christ. God gave a window to preach the gospel to the man but like that rich young ruler, he walked away in unbelief. Maybe you think if you confess your crimes to somebody right before you die, God will pardon you and let you into heaven. Huh. If only it were that easy. 
You're going to need something far more transformative, something far more real than that. Both of these robbers were lost, at least at the start of this torturous day. And that takes us to the second thing. One man repented. One man repented. You know, it's interesting to me that each gospel writer goes to great lengths to point out that Jesus' cross was in the middle. There was a thief on the right and a thief on the left. Jesus hung in the middle. And it's no stretch to suggest that these gospel writers saw this as a picture of how Christ divides humanity, those who believe in Him and those who do not. And so, we're, as we're reading this story, we're a little bit shocked when we read the words in verse 42, Jesus this is one of the robbers. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, there's a gap in the storyline here that I am excited to get filled in on when I get to glory because <laughs> I want to know what happened. God did not see fit to tell us when this robber changed, but He does tell us that the robber changed, and somehow this particular criminal went from condemning Jesus to confessing Jesus. He changed. He stopped reviling and and started revering. He quit cursing Jesus and began committing to Jesus. Other people have committed, or have commented rather, how this is one of the most dramatic displays of faith the world is ever going to see. Within just a few hours, sometime between 9 a.m. and noon, this guilty criminal, this robber, this thief, went from heaping scorn on Jesus to asking grace from Jesus. Now, think for a moment about who. This robber is asking to remember him when he comes in his kingdom. Who's he looking at when he makes this request? A dying man, a bleeding man, a naked man, a scorned man, a rejected man, a disfigured man, a debilitated man, a man who does not look like a king, doesn't parade like a king, he doesn't even die like a king, even though a mocking sign hangs on the top of his cross which calls him a king. But somehow this thief has been transformed on the inside to stop seeing Jesus as Jesus looked in that moment and to start seeing Jesus for who he really was. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man is not playing the odds. He's not covering his bases. He has been changed. He has been transformed on the inside. And we have to ask the question, what changed? Well, clearly, his self-evaluation changed He tells the other robber, verse 41, we're receiving, you and I are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This this thief had come to his spiritual senses. There was no doubt he was going to die and his fellow robber was going to die. Crucifixion means death. And after death comes the judgment. And this this man, he hears the mocking of of the other robber on the other side of Jesus and, and he sort of peers over to him and instead of joining in with him, because he's been changed, he now calls and warns the other robber. The the heart of gospel change is seen in how a person views themselves. How do you view yourself? This robber understands his condition. 
He, he says to the other thief, friend, we're under the same sentence. We are going to die. And are you really going to spend your last few breaths making fun of the man hanging between us. I don't know why he is here, but I know why we are here. We are getting what we deserve. Verse 41, indeed, we are are being put to death justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now, this thief has realized something. We, he says to him and the other thief, we are being justly condemned. And I think he's thinking a whole lot more than about the things he stole. The Old Testament punishment for stealing was compounded retribution. You steal somebody's bushel of oats and get caught, well, then you have to return their bushel of oats plus another one. You steal this guy's sheep, you get caught, you return his sheep and you have to give one more sheep, compounded retribution. Now, there were some slight variations on that law. In certain cases, um, you know, maybe you had to give seven of something back, but that's all it is. There is nowhere in the Old Testament where there is a death penalty for stealing. So when this thief says, we're being put to death justly, I think he's thinking a lot more than his mere thefts, if we can put it that way. He understands something. He understands he's a lawbreaker. He understands that he's a lawbreaker through and through, what the Bible calls a sinner. And he knows that the penalty for sin is death, an eternal death, whether that's for a theft or a lie or using God's name in vain or being an adulterer. He knows the wages of sin is death. And this thief understands that. It's as as if his entire life has now opened before him and he can feel the guilt of all of his sins resting on his bloodied shoulders. And there is nothing more for him to do. He's nailed to a cross. He's going to die. He needs to find someone to take care of this guilt for him on his behalf. This is what we would call a legal guilt, a good guilt, an honest guilt, what the Bible calls godly sorrow. Do you remember the name Judas? Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus to the authorities just hours earlier in this story. And after Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, after he realized that they were going to illegally murder Jesus, Judas came back to the religious authorities trying to undo what he had done, but it didn't work, and he felt terrible for what he had done, but not terrible enough. Matthew says, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went. Do you know what's next? And he hanged himself. Still not looking for a savior, he chose suicide. Remorse is not repentance. They're not even second cousins. That thief on the cross felt much more than remorse for his sins. 
He was broken. He was undone. He was guilty to the point of having no answer, no solutions, and he needed a real solution, not some lame attempt at making amends. He, this thief is now rejecting all ideas of self-righteousness, but when he turns to his right, what does he see? He sees a man without sin. Verse 41, this man has done nothing wrong. He never stole anything. He never had a lustful thought. He never coveted another man's wife. He never lied or fudged the truth. He never used God's name like a cuss word. This man has done nothing wrong. And yet here, this man hangs in agony and blood, as the hymn writer said, oh, can it be upon that tree the Savior dies for me, my soul is thrilled. My heart is filled to think he dies for me. Friend, was there ever faith like this criminal's faith? God opens the eyes of this robber to see, to really see Like we just sang a moment ago, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Have you been given that sight? When that man's spiritual eyes were opened, he saw his sin for what it was, an unbearable load of guilt and shame, and he saw Jesus for who Jesus was, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he repented. That means he he turned away from himself and he rested everything on Jesus. What if Jesus destined for you to be here today in order to call you to repent to him? I think that'd be wonderful. You'll never come until you rightly estimate your guilt before God and rightly estimate the Savior that God has provided. Can you say, I deserve hell? Every Christian in this room has come to a place in their life where they could say that, I deserve hell. But God in His mercy did something for me. what this thief is saying. turns to the other thief. Do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But his evaluation of things did not stop there, did it? For rather than looking at his terrible state, he casts his eyes on the glorious Savior. Did you notice how both robbers asked to be saved? But there was a world of difference in the motivation to their requests. The first robber wanted out of his predicament. Save yourself and us. The other man wanted into God's grace. Jesus, remember me. Lots of people cry out to God when they're in trouble. Lots of men and women believe in prayer when they lose a kid in the mall or face imminent financial collapse or get a terrible diagnosis of some kind or a relationship's falling apart. And those same people, are you one of them? Go right back to living their own way of life the moment everything seems to get better. The first thief wanted Jesus to get him off the cross so he could go back to stealing. The second thief wanted Jesus. Jesus. 
The first thief thought Jesus would have to save himself in order to save him. The second thief understood Jesus would die in order to deliver him to glory. And that takes us to Jesus, the one we Christians are incredibly thankful for. The third thing, the one man saved. So, I might say that one man did the saving. I'm talking about Jesus here. We've already seen of the thief. He believed Jesus could save him. He prayed to Jesus and asked for that salvation. He admitted his sins and acknowledged his guilt. But now we're asking, is there any salvation? solid evidence that Jesus indeed saved him. And I would suggest there are two convincing proofs. Proof number one, the man's life. The repentant robber lived like a Christian. Let me show you how. Look, when God saves a man or a woman, they're not instantly made perfect. Just look around the room. (laughs) But they'll begin to display the fruit of a changed heart. The Bible does not conceive of a person who is truly saved but just continues to live like the world. Our works never save us, but they do prove the realness of that salvation. That's what James was getting at in James 2.17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You you can say, I believe in Jesus all you like, but if there's no attendant good works, your faith is not, it's a dead faith. It's not real, never was. So what were the works of this crucified or being crucified robber now that he is saved by Jesus? Here's the evidence of God's saving grace grace in his life. I, I feel like I'm coming before a court of law. I'm going to submit three pieces of evidence. Here's submission number one. The saved thief loved another sinner. Verse 40, but the other, this is the saved one, rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? I just want you to note how this man loved the other robber. He preached the truth to the other robber. He called on the other robber to repent. These robbers were Jewish men. They had the Old Testament. They knew there was a day of judgment for every single soul. And so this robber, being crucified robber, looks at the other robber getting crucified, and he asks him, have you no fear of God? Aren't you considering what is about to happen to us? Maybe that first robber remembers synagogue school and a passage he had to memorize out of Amos chapter 4, prepare to meet your God, O Israel, for behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Prepare to meet your God. That saved thief evangelized the other thief by warning him of the judgment to come. We're going to stand before God today, friend. And I would say that is an evidence of God's saving grace in his life. The second submission, the saved thief acknowledged Jesus was Lord. He did this when when he mentioned Christ's kingdom. He says in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If Jesus had a kingdom, that means he's a king. He's the king. He's the king of the Jews and the king of the world. And another word for king is Lord. Friend, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Third submission, the saved thief humbly and openly identified with Jesus. He did this even when the 11 disciples would not. But here's this dying thief, this now born-again thief, hanging from a cross, saying things like, this man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me. In other words, that thief has completely identified with Jesus as his Messiah, 
These are the evidences of His very real faith. Real faith always brings real works. J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, has a chapter. I think it's chapter 11. I encourage you to get the book and read the chapter. It's all on this event. And he writes this, this thief was never baptized. He belonged to no visible church. He never received the Lord's Supper. He never gave money to Christ's cause, but he had faith, and so he was saved. Even a man unable to move his limbs can have faith and do good works. Perhaps not those outward religious things we might expect, but he can certainly do something in the time and the space that he has. What about you? You say you are a Christian. Is your life full of good works? Or are you resting your hope for heaven on something some religious person did for you or did to you as a child? What evidence from your life can you submit to prove that you have been born again? Not to earn the salvation, never, but to say, here's evidence of God's grace in my life. Do you love other people? Do you honor King Jesus? Are you actively abandoning all your old sins? Do you publicly identify with Jesus? If I visited your school or your workplace, would everybody there know that you're a Christian? Would your vocabulary and values and choices all be different and godly? Or would they think you were just like them? You know, there are people who hang around the edges of churches and religion who love this particular story in the Bible. Last second, 11th hour conversion. Children, high schoolers, young adults. Are you thinking, well, you know, there's just some things in life I'd really like to do. There's some sins I would love to play with. And then later on, I'll come to Christ. In fact, I'm just going to live my life, and uh, since I got the gospel in my back pocket, I'll wait until my deathbed, and then just like this dying thief, on my deathbed, I'll repent. So I get all of life, stuff I want, and then I get heaven at the end. That's folly. You may not be blessed with a deathbed. I had a friend who was waiting for a bus one autumn morning, 25, 30 years ago, foggy morning, and he was just standing there when he was suddenly struck by a semi that had popped the curb, missed the light, instantly killed. The woman standing three feet from him was just standing there. Your life may end in an instant with no time to repent. But even if you do live to old age and somehow you get fair warning that your end is near, just look at this story and be warned. Two men were hung, dying there beside Jesus. Both heard the same things. Both saw him pray for his persecutors. Both read the sign, King of the Jews. Both watched as the sky turned dark at noon. Both heard the words of Jesus, it is finished. Both had time and space to repent and believe, but only one was saved. A deathbed cannot save you. 
Just like difficult circumstances cannot save you, God must save you. You need Jesus to look you in the eye and say, today you will be with me in paradise. Please note that Jesus does not say that until that man repents and prays and says, remember me. Have you prayed to Jesus? You prayed a prayer like that? You called out to him to save you from your sins? Or are you just going to keep pushing Jesus away? One of the thieves was saved. One was not. You know, in just a few hours, these robbers are going to get their legs broken. Crucifixion was horrendous. But the surefire way to speed up death, because you didn't necessarily want it to go fast, you wanted it to go slow. Over many days, many people would hang on crosses. And the surefire way to bring it to a swift close was to take something like a baseball bat and just smash the legs of the people who were hanging there. Why? Because when the legs are smashed, he can no longer push up. The reason your feet are nailed to the cross is so you can push up because your lungs are filling with water, with fluid. And so the only way to keep breathing is to, and this is what part of the excruciation of the cross, is to push up on on the nailed feet and to catch another breath. So when you want to end a guy's life, you just smash his legs. And when that moment came for these two robbers, one of them breathed his last and stood in paradise with Jesus. And one of them breathed his last and was cast into hell forever. How do we know that one man went to heaven? Because in his very short life that he had after conversion, he lived like a Christian. He bore fruit. But I'll give you a second and even more sure reason we know this man went to heaven. Jesus told the man he was saved. (laughs) It doesn't get better than this. One of life's most perplexing questions is, what happens the moment I die? Well, we know exactly what happens when a Christian dies because of this text. They are instantly with Jesus in paradise. Paradise is another word for heaven or for glory. And at the moment his life expired, while his limp body hung still on that cross at Golgotha, his redeemed soul rejoiced in the presence of God in paradise. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul says there is not even a millisecond of time to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. No human being ever has received a more direct word of assurance than this criminal. Look at verse 43. Jesus said to him, the dying robber, singular, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you know what purgatory is? The word purgatory comes from the Latin word, which means to cleanse. Purgatory is that intermediate place human souls go after death to be cleansed from their sins over hundreds and hundreds of years. Such said the Bible never. I could preach a whole sermon on the word today. Millions of people 
trust in purgatory as a way to think they can just party through life and deal with their sins later. It is a doctrine of demons. But many people love the thought of it, thinking they can just push off responsibility for their sins. There is no purgatory. You won't find the word in your Bible, and you will not find anything mentioned about it in the Bible with other words either. But with that word today, Jesus is making clear to this thief, the moment you die, the moment anyone dies who has been saved by me, they will instantly be with me forever. That guilty thief did not need centuries in some ridiculous man-made, oddly concocted purgatory to pay for his sins because he could say, that man right there pays for my sins. It's as if Jesus is looking at that thief and saying, today you will be with me, Mr. Thief. Today you will join me in paradise, Mr. Robber. Today we're going to be together in glory, Mr. Hurling Abuse at me just a few moments ago, because that's how gracious and kind and able to save I am. Jesus' salvation is secure, truly, I say to you. It is personal, I say to you. It is immediate, today. It is intimate, you will be with me. It is eternal. It is in paradise, and it is by grace. It was an answer to the prayer of a man whose hands and feet were nailed to a cross. There was nothing this thief could do in order to earn his salvation. But there was Jesus doing everything the thief needed in order to give him that salvation. If you ever wondered if Jesus enjoys saving sinners, then look no further. Right to his dying breath, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. That is the great news. But friend, I would say to you, you must not delay. You must not wait. Remember, there were three crosses with Jesus in the middle. Preachers for hundreds of years have said, one thief was saved, so none might despair, but only one, so none might presume. One thief is saved, so none might despair. That's who, I, that's who I'm holding out to you today. Here's your example. Here's your model. Here's a man who's done nothing right. Maybe you've done nothing right. One thief in the 11th hour saved so that none would despair. One lost. So none will presume. I'll put it off for another day. We know what Jesus said to this saved thief. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He could have equally said to the other thief, today you'll be without me in hell forever. With which of these two robbers do you identify? Which side of the cross are you on? Thank God for Jesus. Amen? Thank God for Jesus. The first Adam brought sin and shame into paradise. The second Adam takes the sinful and the ashamed into the greater paradise. And thus, every word of God proves true. Isaiah 53, verse 10, when his soul, when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. At the very moment, Jesus is making 
his offering for the guilt of mankind. He saw from his cross to another cross the fulfillment of his work, his offspring, the fruit of his saving work, one of the many whom he was dying to save. So, friend, I say, take hope. None are so lost that God cannot save them, but take warning. Just knowing that God can save you is never enough. You must know Jesus personally. You must know him intimately. You must know him as your Savior. Jesus is what I am most thankful for today. You and I know the only Savior the world is ever going to know. And the moment we leave this life, we have the promise we are going to be with him forever. I love turkey. I love stuffing. I love my family. I love laughter around the table. I love Canada. I love freedom. I love my city. But I do not and I cannot love them more than Jesus, my King, my Lord, and my Savior. Is he your Savior? Is he? Let's pray together. Oh God, do your great work in all of us now. Apply your truth to us. Cleanse, renew, strengthen. Increase our thanksgiving if we know Christ. Send your Holy Spirit now to bring life where there is none. O Spirit of God, come with power. Do your work, we pray, most holy God. Amen.